your word, we would be shown anew and again, as we desire to be shown every day, why there is one rock and one redeemer, and we can cast ourselves upon him, knowing that he is gracious and merciful, and uh, those who hope in him will never be put to shame. And may we bring glory to him as we are led by your word, not to justify ourselves, but to delight in the relationship with you that we have through him to the praise of his glory. I pray in his name. Amen. Please take a seat. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. If you get there really quick, you can put your finger in it and go to Deuteronomy 24. Kids, why did God make marriage? Why did God make marriage? Why did he say all the way back in the Garden of Eden that men and women need to make a promise to one another, a covenant to love and commit to each other their whole lives? The number one reason that God made marriage was to teach us the love that God has for his people. You get to enjoy a lot of good things because of marriage, right? Kids love being raised by their moms and dads. Husbands and wives get to help one another. Those are wonderful things. But all of those gifts come out of the one main gift that men and women in marriage love each other like God loves his people, building up most of all to how Jesus loved the church when he died on the cross for her. Marriage helps you see how Jesus loves us like a husband loves a wife. Marriage reminds us that Jesus promised to love his people forever and ever, being willing to die for us. And every day, Jesus is working for us like a good husband. So whenever, kids, whenever you see a husband and wife, whenever you see a mom or a dad loving each other, you are meant to remember how much Jesus loves us and that his love goes on forever. This is a big part of the answer that Jesus gives to a tricky question that he was asked by the Pharisees. When our passage starts today, Jesus is surrounded by a big crowd of people. He's teaching lots of people. And the Pharisees come up in the middle of everybody with a tough question. Now, are they asking Jesus a tough question because they want to learn from Jesus? No, they're obviously not. They are trying to think of hard questions to get Jesus in trouble. Think of the questions that reporters like to ask politicians. I am asking a question that I hope is going to give me an answer that I can turn into a really scandalous headline. That is what the Pharisees want from Jesus right now. So the Pharisees think they've come up with a real stumper. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now Matthew gives us a little bit more when he tells this story. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? In Jesus' day, this was a hot topic. There was a big division between the teachers who saw divorce as very limited and those who saw the reasons for divorce as very broad. So the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus says, no, divorce is not permitted, then maybe they can accuse him of disagreeing with the law of Moses. If he says it's allowed for any cause, then they're going to say, well, you're just a compromiser trying to go along with what the people want. Also remember that John the Baptist has just been imprisoned and even killed 
for what he said to Herod about divorce. So the Pharisees are maybe even hoping they can wind Jesus up in the same hot water as John the Baptist. So this is a stickier question than it first appears. So let's listen to the Pharisees' tough question and hear how Jesus answers it in Mark chapter 10. Verses 1 to 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the Pharisees have hoped that there are no good answers to this question. Can a man divorce his wife? And Jesus cuts through all that debate and he says, let's ask Moses. Let's talk about what God's word says. Jesus is God. Jesus is able right now to provide a perfect, inerrant, infallible answer to their question. But he is always teaching that scripture is also his word, just as the things that he says, and that it is the authority for believers to settle our questions and disputes. The Pharisees say, well, what does Moses say? That you can write a certificate of divorce and send your wife away. Now, they are referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We see that law in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house... And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." So the debate raging about this passage largely concerned two things. What was the indecency for which the man could send his wife away? And what was the actual process for him obtaining a certificate of divorce and putting it in her hand? Should that process be easy? Should that process be hard? One important detail that you probably noticed when reading this passage is that this is not a blueprint for divorce. It's not even given as a deliberate endorsement of divorce. Rather, it deals with a specific case, but a case which acknowledges the reality of divorce taking place. Moses is referring to a way that divorce could be manipulated to exploit wives. Husbands could send their wives away, and then they could join in other marriages, and then they could, they could divorce, and they could call them back again, seeing marriage as something that you could jump in and out of for convenience. There was also this scam by which a man could send away his wife, and after another marriage, he could call her back and get the dowry from that second marriage. One wife, two dowries. So this law was meant to guard against those ways that men could take advantage of women. 
However, the passage still acknowledges the reality of divorce, that there might be a reason for a man to send to divorce his wife. So what will Jesus make of that acknowledgement? He says to the Pharisees, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. Our first point is this, Jesus understood why the law was given. Did God give this command to teach people how to divorce? No. Many of God's laws that he gave to Israel were not foundational moral commandments like the Ten Commandments. They were civil laws meant to govern a nation. These civil laws were not just meant for the people who loved God, but they were meant to govern the lives of the people who hated him, the unregenerate citizens of Israel. Really, these laws were even more for those people who had no interest in keeping the rules of the Ten Commandments. If every citizen in Israel had perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments, not to commit adultery, then this rule would have actually been superfluous. It would have not been necessary. There are many rules like that in the law, right? Moses tells people what to do in response to killing, in response to thievery. And yet, if the Ten Commandments had been perfectly kept, they wouldn't have needed to know what to do in cases where that happened. So, there is a lot of this civil law in Moses' law teaching people what to do when God's moral commands are broken. It is ridiculous to think that God, by giving this law, said, here is something I love, divorce, and here is how you can make it happen. But the Pharisees did not have an interest in reading the Bible that way. Their, their desire was to isolate passages as, as well as, as, from each other so they could find the most permissive reading. They want to they find a passage that's, that allows for something and say, this is something that God permits. This is something that God is fine with. For the Pharisees, the purpose of God's law was to prove that they had met God's moral standard. That's why God gave the law, to show whether or not we were worthy, whether or not we were justified based on the works that we had done. Now, if your relationship with God depends in any way on your own effort, then you are going to want God's bar to be as low as possible. You want God's exam to have a very low passing grade. So, for the Pharisees to get this command that seemingly tells them how to get divorced. This is really exciting for them. They are invested in the question of whether or not divorce is allowable for any reason. Because if you already have a heart that is full of coveting and adultery, then having this sort of lawful escape hatch on your marriage covenant so that you haven't broken the command against adultery physically is really desirable. This is going to be really helpful for me. So the Pharisees are left pointing to these laws that are meant to govern wicked, unregenerate citizens in Israel and trying to figure out how they can use them as their standard for self-righteousness. This is a really common self-deception when we read God's word. The word legalist gets thrown around so much today. It's almost got no meaning. We think of people with a very strict set of visible rules, right? Churches where men and women have to separate, maybe people who only read the KJV. But if we say that the definition of a legalist is someone who wants to be justified by works instead of grace, somebody who thinks that their relationship with God depends on what they do rather than the grace of God, if that's our definition of a legalist, then you will find that a legalist might have a high standard regarding some very visible rules, but 
they will often be found looking for the lowest standard in God's word. Consider somebody who says, I just think that if you're kind to everyone, polite, sincere, then God won't turn you away. Or even that person who, who judges someone who, who even disagrees about the gospel. Well, he's just so nice. You need to spend time with him. You've got to see how kind he is. What a great guy that is. If that guy doesn't know God, then I don't know who does. It doesn't matter what he says about his beliefs. You know what that is? That is legalism. That is saying that God must receive someone based on an assessment of that person. God must receive them based upon their choices and their actions. My friend, you can hate Christians who take holiness too seriously. You might cringe at somebody thinking of you as one of those really zealous conservative religious people. You might be actively trying to prove that your religious life works with one foot in the world, living just like your neighbors who don't love God. And you just need to meet this minimum standard of prayer and kindness. But it might be time to ask yourself, are you just a low bar legalist? Have you missed the actual way that people have a right relationship with God? Have you missed how an actual relationship with God changes your heart and your life? My friend, you do not have to meet a high standard of righteousness. You will always fall short of God's glory. Jesus said, be perfect like God is perfect. If you are looking in at yourself to figure out whether or not you, by your actions, have a good relationship with God, there's your bar. Be perfect as God is perfect. But then, Jesus went and lived that very life. Jesus lived the life that you could not live for 10 minutes. And then, entirely as an undeserved gift of grace, with that record of a perfect life in his hand, he gives it to you. He takes your record from you. Whether you've done well or poorly, your black-stained sinful record. And he takes that and he says, what does this deserve? I see that it deserves the wrath of God. It deserves death. I'll pay that. I will go to the cross with that for you. So that now you can come to God regardless of your works. You can show him, not that you've met some low bar, not that you've met some high bar. You can show me, I have in my hand the record of perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it is mine, and he's given it to me, just as surely as he took my record away. That is what justifies you. Stop looking at yourself. Stop striving to reach a high bar. Stop justifying yourself by saying that there must be a low bar for God to accept you. Lift up your eyes even higher and look at Jesus and trust in him. Once you understand that salvation, that salvation that is entirely through grace alone, then you don't have to water down God's holy standard anymore. 
Because you aren't trying to figure out what you need to do to make sure you qualify to get into God's family. It's not the question you're asking. Now you're just gazing in awe at the standard that Jesus Christ met for you. And then, once you've enjoyed that salvation, you can come back to that standard and you can ask, I want to know what it means to enjoy being a child of this God. I want to know how to be like my older brother Jesus. After all that he did for me, his grace for me, I want to be like him. I want to draw near to him. I want to know him better. Show me. We can love God's law that way. And we know that we are saved entirely by grace. That when we fail, as we will fail every day, we will continue to live every day by grace. So we don't need to panic at God's standard of righteousness. We even know that we have his Holy Spirit as a helper to accomplish what you never could do when you were trying to justify yourself. So Jesus doesn't need to isolate this passage in Deuteronomy like the Pharisees are doing to try and figure out what what are we allowed to do? What can we get away with while still saying we've kept God's law? Now we can say, let's look at all God's word and ask, what was God's design for marriage? What was his goal? Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis. He goes to creation and he says, here's God's purpose for marriage. That's our second point. Jesus understands God's design for marriage. Now, the way that marriage has been treated in our world today is obviously quite tragic. A marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman that apparently no longer requires a man or a woman or a covenant or a lifetime. Human beings have commandeered the definition of what God has created so that we can water it down, so that we can ignore it, so that we can remold it like clay into whatever we want to do. Now, Jesus here shows us how God defines marriage. And some people have tried to say that Jesus says nothing about homosexuality. Jesus says nothing about all the ways that people have tried to change marriage nowadays, tried to change manhood and womanhood. Yet here, Jesus tells us, this is what marriage is. And he says, it is inextricably bound up with the creation of men and women. Now, this this analogy is a little bit flippant, but I think it's helpful. If you ask me, to provide for you a definition or description of a cat. And I tell you, a cat is a four-legged mammal with pointy ears and a tail, furry. You cannot walk away and say, well, you know, Jordan said nothing about whether or not a cat could be an aquatic bird with webbed feet and a bill. Here in this passage, Jesus tells us what marriage is. He defines it. And he does not separate his own word from the rest of what he has said in Scripture. He defines it with Genesis, as Genesis does, and as it's defined from there all the way to Revelation. We will not pit Jesus against his word, and we will look at this and see how foolish it is when people try and say he didn't talk about this subject to justify their own sin. But even when we have some basic grasp of God's definition of marriage, many people who would count themselves conservative Christians struggle to understand the real richness and meaning behind it. What was God's purpose in giving it? Jesus explains here, marriage is not just some institution meant to help a society. It's not just a legally binding relationship. It is something that God knit into the creation of men and women manhood and womanhood. He is the one who joins husbands and wives together. 
And marriage is not just about the gifts a marriage brings. Yes, it comes with many gifts. It is here so that moms and dads can raise kids. It is here so husbands and wives can help each other. But those gifts depend upon a deeper purpose for marriage. Why did God create us male and female in the first place? Why did he determine that there would be the two instead of just one? Why did he immediately, as soon as he created them, say, and this is the way that they will form a covenant bond with one another. This is the way that they will join together. He gave us this union to help us understand right from the beginning the kind of covenant love that he was going to show to his people. He created two, manhood and womanhood, so that we could see God and us and know how he would form a loving relationship with us. It shows us that there is a covenant relationship, what it looks like, that it has roles that are definable. God teaches Israel to see their relationship with him like a husband with a wife. We saw that in Isaiah. See how he has bound himself to them. See how he's committed to their good. God is ready to say to his people that their joys would become his, that his sorrow would become his, their sorrow would become his. He is ready to expose himself to grief over their sin. And we saw in Isaiah that he also wants to show them how faithful he is to his promises. That even when they have deserved to be sent away by him, he holds tight to them. How faithful he is to his covenants. God is a gracious husband. He draws his people to him again and again and again, like a bride beloved by her husband. And all of this beautiful imagery culminates and flowers in the coming of Jesus. And the marriage parable is fully revealed in how he loves his church. When God says that a husband and wife become one flesh, he is showing us how the savior of the world will unite himself to the church and call it his body. Our union with Jesus is so intimate that when we understand it, we see that our debts do become his. Our sinful record must be his now to bear. He can really die a death in our place and have it be our death on the cross so that Paul can say that when he dies, we are crucified with Christ. He can rise from the dead and obtain a triumph over death that is not just his own, but truly is the first fruits for those who believe. The first fruits of our own resurrection from the dead. That is the power of the unity of the covenant relationship that we have with Jesus. And even now, he is daily fulfilling his role of a husband to us. He is seeking our good. He is pursuing our sanctification, our joy in his love for us until that day when we will be presented to him in white, spotless and sanctified. That is why God made men and women. That is why God gave them a covenant union He was laying the foundation, even before the fall into sin, he was laying the foundation for us to understand the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. Now that Jesus has gone to Genesis to unfold for Pharisees the foundation of God's design for marriage, he can answer their question. Does God allow divorce for any cause? And he replies, What God has joined together, let no man separate. Our third point is this. Jesus understands covenant love and faithfulness. 
Jesus said God did not create marriage to be a come and go relationship. It is not meant to be temporary. It is a covenant bond created by God. And as such, human beings cannot break that bond by their own will. God's design has always been that people would delight in marriage as a parable of the gospel and that they would testify to this by living in lifelong covenant faithfulness. Think about how breaking down your marriage covenant would change what you are saying about the gospel. If a husband can send away his wife because he is annoyed with her or thinks that she's too argumentative, what should God think of our sin and weakness? How should he respond to that? Oh, that's so annoying. I'm so sick of it. I hope I have a way out of my relationship with these people. If a husband and wife can separate because they've, come, they've grown apart, they've become two different people, they have different priorities we hear so often today, what should God do when our priorities don't seem to be the same as his? We just appear to be on different tracks, pursuing different things. No harm, no foul. We're just, you know, you keep going, I will not come after you. But when our hearts are truly overwhelmed by the gospel, when we are overcome with Jesus' commitment of himself to love and care for and die for unworthy sinners, how would we proclaim the gospel in our marriages? We would lay down our lives for our spouses with unwavering commitment. We aren't in this marriage because there are certain benefits we came for. Because our spouses deserve our love and will be here as long as they deserve it. We are here because we want to live out just a shadow and a glimpse, an image of the love that Jesus had for us. We will commit to our spouse's joy, their sanctification, their relationship with their Heavenly Father. Christian spouses are not meant to be paranoid about whether or not they are going to do or say something to make their husband or wife abandon them. They are meant to read about God's covenant love and faithfulness in Scripture and know that their husband or wife has made that same promise to them. When we see that Jesus will never leave or forsake us, that his love for us is unto eternity, we want to testify above all that truly loving and committing to our spouses till death do we part is our song about that gospel every day. And we celebrate That this is a promise that is recognized and sealed by God. Who has made us one flesh. So that we can see the glory of how Christ bound himself to his church. This is not a bond that you can just walk away from. You cannot say, oh I've, I've found a new wife now. I found a new husband now. That assumes that you get to choose the bond. Instead of asking, who has God bound me to? Jesus says, you don't have the option to break apart what God has joined in one flesh. That's like going back on a heart transplant or a hip replacement. You know what? It's not really working out. Just take that out and we'll both go our separate ways, me and that heart. You can't act as though nothing has happened. If we try and break apart what God has made one flesh, we are saying that our unity with Christ is something that he can cancel at any moment. That we might find one day that there is condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that's impossible. So our marriages are meant to reflect that. Now later the disciples ask if he can clarify this teaching. 
and he is more frank. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now Matthew includes an added sentence in Jesus' answer to the Pharisees that has caused some confusion. Matthew 19.9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now in the one passage, it seems like Jesus has ruled out divorce entirely. Now in the other, it sounds like he has a caveat. What are we to make of this? And it's actually very helpful for us because we ought to understand these two together. What is adultery? Adultery is sinfully breaking the terms of the marriage covenant. Adultery, which most clearly happens through sexual immorality, is in itself a rejection of the covenant. It is a divorcing action. Jesus says that if someone tries to walk out on their spouse hoping to find a new one, claiming that they have not sinned, that's adultery. The legal divorce did not free you from God's binding you to your first spouse. Sending your spouse away in divorce was an adulterous act. It was breaking apart what God had joined. This means that there is no way that a marriage can end without at least one party being guilty of serious sin. Nowadays, we hear a lot about no-fault divorce. This is a relatively new concept, and we can understand why it's caught on in our world. But God's definition of marriage does not have room for no-fault divorce. If we believe marriage is a covenant established by God, then to break those covenant terms is sin. It must be true in every divorce that at least one party, if not both, have committed that sin. However, it is important to note in Jesus' answer that not every divorce is sinful on the part of both parties. A spouse may obtain a legal divorce because their spouse has already sinfully broken the terms of their marriage through adultery. If your husband or wife has committed adultery, you can divorce them. You can even remarry without guilt or fear because your obtaining of a divorce was not the breaking of the covenant. The adultery was. There was a sinful breaking of the marriage covenant, but it was not your sin. Jesus grants equal rights in this to the husband and the wife. Just as both can sin in a way that breaks the covenant, both of them could legally dissolve the marriage when the other spouse has already broken the covenant through adulterous sin, such as sexual immorality or abandonment. Now, Jesus is actually helping us to understand what Moses meant in Deuteronomy. Moses did not mean you could leave your wife on any terms. That was never the plan. Adultery was the indecency that made divorce legitimate. This was part of the hard-heartedness that God's law acknowledged, that adultery would happen and divorce might be a procedure that a righteous person could follow in light of that. And Moses' law was helping God's people to see those terms on which that divorce could be understood. Now, it is also true that the spouse that was sinned against does not have to follow through with the breaking of the covenant by obtaining a legal divorce. They can choose to extend grace and uphold the marriage covenant in forgiveness of the sin of adultery. But it is also important that they do not have to do this. When God tells his people that he will receive them back, not because 
of what they have done, but entirely because of grace, he means it. It's real, actual, undeserved grace. And he means that it would be just for him to obtain a divorce and send them away because of their adulterous sin. This means that when a spouse chooses, based on the adultery of their husband or wife, to divorce them, they are demonstrating God's good justice. God loves his justice. That is not a sin. Or the spouse can choose to extend God's grace by remaining in the covenant as God did with his people. God loves his grace. This is not a sin. In both cases, God is pleased. One important discussion that also comes up that I think we have to look at when we come to this passage is what sins constitute adultery and abandonment, and thus which sins invite a spouse to dissolve a marriage through divorce. There have been terrible sins committed within marriages. Cruelty, physical abuse, and this passage has at times been used to tell the victims of those sins that because we would not count this adultery, because one might not. They should remain, not only in the marriage, but continue to bear with the sin of their spouse, even if it is dangerous for them and their family. We would be very foolish to use this passage to cover over and ignore sins. Things that the Bible is very clear are sin. The Bible heartily condemns men who take advantage of the physical weakness of their wife, or are impatient, it condemns all hatred, an uncontrolled temper, condemns pride and haughtiness. The Bible also tells us that it is right for a church to defer to the sword of the government when a crime has been committed that is within the government's sphere. It would be the church's right duty to bring up these sins to the government immediately if it is the government's responsibility to bear the sword in those cases. It is also good for us as Christians to protect our brothers and sisters from unrepentant sin being committed against them as much as we are able. So do not hesitate to speak to your church about sin taking place in your home. It may also be true that the sin committed against you is one that amounts to abandonment and adultery, and that the right action indeed might be to follow through with divorce. Now we need to be careful here as well, because not all sin within a marriage amounts to a broken covenant. But there are sins that do. And we will expect to find that sin in cases where a righteous church or a government might see a need to take action against a person. So please, if you are sorting through these questions alone, invite the church in. It is one of the gifts of the church to walk through these trials together and to see how the Lord helps us. Do not be silent. If you have known what it is to grieve the pain of a broken marriage or sin within marriage, then come to the perfect husband. Come to the one who makes eternal promises. Know his unfailing, constant love for you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will never change. He will never weaken in his commitments. He will never waver in his care or commitment to you. 
The covenant love, this covenant love and faithfulness is also a hope for you. If there are those here who have acted sinfully against their marriage covenant, even if there are those here who obtained a sinful divorce, Jesus loved his bride so much that he united with us in our sin. And he bore that sin to the cross and he put it to death there, never to be remembered. It is in the covenant love of Christ that you can find forgiveness, renewal, sanctification, and hope in the face of your own covenant unfaithfulness. Have you repented of that sin? Have you trusted in the salvation of Jesus? Do not delay. Oh friend, do not live with that sin, either to justify it or carry its weight any longer. Christ is here now. And his promises are sure, unfailing, and eternal. And he makes them to all who call upon him to be saved. Now husband, wife, brother, sister, you know, no matter who you are, that you have fallen short of God's covenant love for his people. You have fallen short of Jesus' gracious, eternal commitment to his bride. But it is because Jesus showed his love for you that you can come back to that standard of faithfulness and you can love it. That's how Jesus loves you. And you can even strive to live in that and enjoy it by following Christ by the power of his spirit. Single people, you can walk in self-control. Never objectifying people made in the image of God. Honoring the marriages of your brothers and sisters even as you rightly long to have that covenant relationship yourself. Husband, you can love the gospel covenant that God has put you in with your wife. You can love them like Jesus loved the church. You can lay down your whole life for their good. Not just saying I'd be willing to physically die for her if I had to, but dying to yourself for your wife every day. Not by submitting to your wife as a doormat, to tell her whatever you say is good. You are a servant to your wife because you are submitting to Christ. And he tells you what is good for your wife and your family. And he desires that you would be a part of his wonderful work, that she would be one day be presented spotless and white before him. Wife, you can love the gospel commitment that God has put you in with your husband. He is not Jesus you have probably already noticed. But he wants to love you as Jesus does. That is his goal, that is his aim, that is what he strives for. Help him. His efforts might not always look like what you want. They might feel sputtering and weak and inconsistent, but help him. And love when he does that. Love when he strives to love your family like Jesus does. Love when he tries to pattern this covenant relationship after Christ's love of his church, when he wants to lead your kids in that, encourage him and help him to be more conformed to the image of Christ in your marriage and all your life. Not all sin dissolves a marriage covenant. Every single marriage will teach you repentance and grace and forgiveness and patience and patience and patience and patience and patience. So let's love marriage 
because we are learning in it what the gospel means, what the gospel really is. It is a daily parable of the love of Jesus for us. I hope that all of us, married and single and young and old, those who delight in having a marriage built upon the gospel, those who grieve broken marriage covenants, may all of us delight in the covenant faithfulness of our God and in Jesus, the perfect husband of the church, who united himself, who became one flesh with us, who paid our debts, who bore our stripes, who purchased life for us, and who is preparing a household, a place for us to dwell with him, where he will be faithful to us forever and ever and ever, and not even death will part us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises of Jesus. Thank you that in him we find the thing that marriage points to. Father, in our marriages, as we see the marriages of others, as we hear about it in your word, Father, may we glimpse the depths of the commitment and faithfulness of Jesus. May we get a glimpse of the strength, the eternal strength of his promises. The depth of the unity he has with his people the richness of the gifts he provides for us, the perfection of his substitution, binding himself to us so he can take our place. And may we also see in this living parable the hope we have for an eternity of a covenant bond that will never ever be broken. Father, I pray that those here who do not rest in that relationship, that covenant, would join in it now, only by faith, Delight in and rest in these promises forever. We praise you for holding and keeping us. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we can rest in him now and forever, I pray. Amen.